Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Tuesday morning to you. Welcome to the House of All Marine Radio. Hope you're having a wonderful Christmas week, wherever you are. My 18-year-old daughter came home yesterday. A friend of hers has COVID, so she went and got tested. So she walks in the house. She goes, I'm positive. I have COVID. And so I had noted last week that I had a sore throat. And yesterday in the morning, I had a headache. Sunday, I had a bit of a headache. So I, I would tell you, I'm without being tested, I would tell you I'm positive for COVID. How about that? Um, but I would say it goes back to last week and I don't have um, I'll go get tested today. But I don't have very, all my symptoms are I would say nothing that even actually made me think of it until she mentioned it yesterday. I just thought I had a sore throat. And then when she said that her friend was positive when I when my the headache kind of resumed and I don't get headaches and um, I thought yeah these are the symptoms right so anyway so then after I yelled at Colleen for being d- disgusting and bringing COVID into my house she looked at me and she said, well, wait a minute. How do we know you didn't give it to me? I said, what? <laughs> she said, well, you're the one that was traveling. And I said, yeah, but you're the disgusting 18-year-old. So we're not exactly sure who gave it to who, but yeah. Merry COVID Christmas in the McNamara house. So... 
we have that going on. But you know what? Not going to diminish the Christmas spirit. Um, certainly for me. Um, the um, so good morning to you. Tell you what we're going to do today. The Mensa brothers joined me again, and as promised, we we're going to we do a deep dive on the Wizard of Oz. So it's interesting, interesting. Um, and uh, we also talk about Vietnam a little bit. Timmy kind of walks us through what he thinks is a very interesting aspect of Vietnam, which is the evolution of a program called ARPA that came out of World War II into what became known as DARPA. And there's a version of it that works has worked technology, Jaedo, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So anyway, and we get into an interesting discussion about this American way of war in which technology dominates. And we believe we can win insurgencies like that. And as a result, we have colossally failed twice. And uh, so interesting. Interesting. So, uh, yeah, and then after we talk about DARPA, ARPA, Jaedo, then um, <clears throat> then, <laughs> then the um, then we then we do the deep dive on the Wizard of Oz. So I watched the Wizard of Oz last night. I think I fell asleep a couple times. I did not see the house fall on on the witch's sister. Did not see that. But I saw most of the rest of it. And uh, hold on. If you have COVID, you should pull a Chris Cuomo and do a 24-7 live broadcast from your Studio One garage. I renamed Studio One Studio A. I don't know why A sounds better than one, but I, I like Studio A and Studio B's in the house in the back bedroom. Yeah, just for the record. Um. Yeah, so, yeah, we kind of pulled the Wizard of Oz apart. And that's an actually interesting discussion, deep dive on the Wizard of Oz. So, uh, yeah. And, um, and we did not finish the discussion because as we ended it, Will said, you know, we never actually discussed what is the purpose of the munchkins in the movie? Who do the, who do the munchkins represent so we might have to like address that tomorrow and we're going to talk about vietnam jeff's kind of you know what he thinks is very interesting about vietnam is the use of the helicopter and all the different manifestations of its use and how it changed uh how america went to war yeah the helicopter makes its appearance um so yeah i think i have tricked them into coming on all week it's possible. It's possible. Um, yeah. The um, yeah. So that's what you're gonna hear today. The um, what else is going on? That's about it. That's about it. Um, we had an interesting conversation about the staff NCO warrant yesterday that was changing, and uh, we will readdress that because evidently we're completely wrong. Yeah, how about that? You don't hear that very often on this show. Um, 
but Jeff had a conversation with somebody and uh, yeah, senior enlisted was all he would give up <laughs> um, and said, hey, look, I listen and there's, uh, there's some stuff that you guys don't know. So we'll get Jeff to wax eloquent on that and give up what he knows. Um, but he just kind of teased it. And I said, oh, well, that's good. That's good. Somebody listened. Somebody corrected us. I like that. Um, so uh, so that's kind of interesting little uh, thing. And um, Christmas, right? Three and a wake up. Yeah, how about that? Right around the corner, just around the block, like 7-Eleven. So, uh, yeah, the weather here, it's going to start raining. That means the other part of my fence is probably going to blow over. I had to prop my fence up last week. I walked out of the house. It was raining and the wind was blowing. And they just replaced two-thirds of my fence. Well, this is the other third. And all of a sudden... I look, and it's at a 45-degree angle. And I'm like, that's not right. I See, I, I know that kind of shit about construction. That's not right. So I go to my next-door neighbor, and I said, hey, man, I think we should prop this thing up, lest the whole thing go. And um, so we did. We put big trash cans on either side. I put some weights on it so it wouldn't move, and it, and it held the fence. And uh, then... Uh, the guy who I rent this house from said, hey, next time just let it go. I'll claim it on my insurance, and we'll get it replaced. So it's supposed to rain on Thursday and a little wind, so pfft, say goodbye to our fence on Thursday. So that's going on, and uh, other than that, just Christmas. Oh, my equipment came for my conversion from YouTube TV to my local to Spectrum, which used to be Time Warner Cable. And I'm actually pleased with that. Yeah, there's only one thing I have left to figure out, and that is how do I record certain shows? But I'll figure that out. But other than that, I bundled my internet with my and my TV. And whether it be DirecTV, you know, Spectrum or whoever you use, they all have apps that you could stream, and then you can cast it to a device that has a Roku or Google, what do they call those things? Google Cast. I want to say Google Chrome, but that's not it. Chromecast. Yeah, that little HDMI receiver that you plug into your TV. That's pretty slick. So, yeah, I'm... Uh, and, you know, there's something in me that likes getting further away from Google. I mean, come on, man. They know Google knows enough about me. They can dial that. Uh, they can dial that back a little bit, right? So, um, so yeah. So that's what's going on this morning. And the United States Marine Corps Band will uh, will make it official. So. Merry Christmas to everybody out there. Happy holidays to everybody else. Yeah, for all you kind of Christmas hater types um, or non-Christmas celebratory types. So, And I'm good with either one. It doesn't really matter to me um, as long as you're happy with yourself.
Yeah, that's because see, that's the spirit of Christmas. So, good morning, and the American Marine Corps Band makes it official. been an awesome night with my graduate seminar group last night and just uh, the most incredible story to a guy named Rob who joined that group last May. Um, um, Rob would tell you that, you know, he didn't have much of a childhood because of uh, the situation he was born into, wound up taking care of other siblings when he was five, six years old. And, um, the uh, I told a story yesterday that, um, and I'll put the link up. Um, but in the in the course of learning post traumatic winning, he begins to practice it, and uh, the story comes out that he fathered a child when he was eighteen. Has no idea uh, where that what happened to that child, and so. Um, there's another woman by the name of Gretchen in the group, and she had that exact same experience. She gave her daughter up, and Gretchen's story is amazing. She's an amazing person, and she is very encouraging to Rob. And uh, But he was kind of stuck during the late summer, and it came up one night as he was talking about a tattoo he has that has the names of all of his kids, except there's one you know, little um, part of that tattoo that's blank. And so um, anyway... He showed up last night, very unexpectedly, um, but it was awesome. And he told a story about what it was like to meet his daughter, who he fathered, uh, when he was 18, um, 35 years later. And what a wonderful woman she is, um, how she, her husband, her children, and her parents that raised her rolled out the red carpet for him and made him feel like he was part of their family. And it's this wonderful story. And I will post the, the link to it um, uh, with this hour post because um, it's just an, it's an awesome, um, it's an awesome story. And so he showed up last night and 
and talked about it and and the whole journey from you know him you know one of the first things he ever said um that i recall was i've made more progress in this and it was either three or four weeks than i have in 30 years of therapy and um you know you hear stuff like that and it certainly um well for me it validates what i know the things i know the th all the different things that people have told me along the way of, of this process of learning the rules of the road that are post-traumatic winning and trying to live a great life after traumatic things happen you know and then watching him walk down that path and seeing now this guy has this incredible story that he can use to inspire others and uh peter ostrowski whose son was pfc jack ryan ostrowski was lost in the uh 15th mu amtrak incident you know he was part of the group last night and he said um you know rob you know how many people you've inspired with that story who have either fathered children or given up children and wonder. And in the story itself, one of the things Rob says, and um, I'll read, and the story gets written. It's funny, he's, he's waiting to meet his daughter in the hotel. He said he's nervous. And this camera crew is downstairs in the lobby of the hotel. And they walk up to him, kind of going to do a man-on-the-street interview because there's a football game, and I don't even know who was playing. And um, they say, so, are you in town for the game? And he says, what game? <laughs> and they're like, well, no, who are you rooting for today? And he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. And they said, are you in town for the game? He said, no, I'm, I, I flew in from California, and this happens in Florida. Um to Boca Raton, um, he said, uh, I'm here to, to uh, meet somebody. And I guess in the course of conversation, he tells them why he's there. I'm here to meet my daughter who, who I've never met. And they, they film it, right? Um, and so one of the things um, that Rob says in the story is um, how peaceful he felt. Quote, right now, peace. Peace, and as I've said to you and her mom, there's peace here. Wherever this goes, who knows? But the puzzle is complete. The puzzle is complete, she says. He said, right? And then... Um, the reporter asks his daughter, her name's Sarah, how do you feel now? She, her response, good. I feel complete. I feel like I know my story and it's a good feeling. Um, so you hear those kind of words, I feel peace and I feel complete. And Peter's point was, um, the number of people that you will inspire by doing what you've done. And so it's almost like you go down this path that is post-traumatic winning, and it starts in a very lonely, desolate place. I call it, you know, you're, you're laying your E.T. by the river, and that river is the river of the valley of the shadow of death. And so it's in a very deep canyon, and that's where you start.
and you begin to invest in your own infrastructure, you begin to make yourself stronger, and you begin to travel this path. And all of a sudden, you know, for somebody like Rob, you know, he's now an incredible example and inspiration for somebody else. And, you know, he would have told you six months ago he was the biggest shit show he knew. And so, um, and again, I, I told him, I said, you know, the inspiration and the example you've set for your own kids, um, for the new grandkids you, that, that you have, and how this story will resonate in their life about what it is to never quit on something and, and whatnot. So, so last night, very cool. And you know what? And I was thinking this morning when I got up, I said, you know, I should have Rob and Sarah on, and we should interview them separately and then interview them together. And it's this incredible story on both their parts. You know, I mean, he, and I won't do it now, but he articulated how she went about looking for both her parents. And, you know, she's married with kids, and she's very concerned about what she would bring in into her, into her life. And, um, yeah, and, but this desire to understand her story, right? When, and she uses the word, I feel complete now. I know now. And he said that just an awesome weekend. And, and again, he couldn't say enough nice things about, you know, about Sarah and her family. So, yeah, I would love to have them both on separately and then uh, in separate interviews, play them consecutively and then end the, the interview with, um, with them uh, on together. So I need to see if they'll be they'd be willing to do that because it's it's a, just an awesome story and in particular around christmas uh when he uh he started texting me i think on sunday and um and i the thought went through my head yeah go ahead and try to have a shitty christmas i dare you to it's impossible possible when you see somebody uh whose life gets transformed and and the impact of that transformation uh, on other people, and then the impact on of that transformation, and and the the way it impacts other people back to them, right? Which ultimately is the path of post traumatic winning. So, with all that said, um, this is dedicated to both Rob and Sarah, and I'm not sure if I dedicated this to them yesterday, but it's just the uh, learning more of their story last night was awesome. I, I just want to thank Rob for taking time out of his day and joining us last night when I'm sure he had he could have gone to sleep or done another thing so this is dedicated to a very cool story um, to um, a father who never forgot and a daughter who always looking and wondering um, what is the story of me very cool <laughs>
You're betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think. And you don't say it honestly and bluntly. What keeps you awake at night? Nothing. I keep other people awake at night. For this campus had prepared him well. <clears throat> I'm very confident that, thank you very much. <clears throat> if this was vodka, it'd be a lot better speech. <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And so, our major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't. We don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago: persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds and win. You gotta win. Time for us to check the weather, as is our custom. Currently in Quantico, partly sunny and 37. Let me make sure I got that right. Yeah, that's right. Down the coast at Cherry Point, it is partly sunny at 49. 29 Palms, it is sunny and 46. Camp Pendleton, partly sunny and 53. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy and 68. Aboard Camp Butler, Okinawa, that would be. Raining, dark and 63. The Philippines, dark cloudy and 81. And Darwin, back over the 80 degree mark. After spending some time in the 70s yesterday. Yeah, dark cloudy, 82. Currently at the home of All Marine Radio, it is mostly cloudy at 54. On our way to 65 today. 63 on Wednesday, rain and 62 on Thursday, rain and 61 on Friday, and rain and 59, what the hell, on Saturday. So, that is a look at your weather. We'll check some news headlines, and I'll do that real quick today, and uh, we'll get to the Mensa Brothers. And... uh, and the Wizard of Oz, as well as Arpadarpa stuff. Mm-hmm. The, um, just trying to set up the, <laughs> the volume switch. Give me a second. Yeah, so when I turn it on next time, it's where I want it to be. Some interesting stories in Stars and Stripes today. Top headline is, Pentagon unveils new extremism rules, including potential punishment for social media likes or shares. Could be an NJP offense. How about that? Now, here's my question. All right. When you look at the last great social media event that the Marine Corps did, 
it was the Marines United thing. And in a force of 285,000, I want to say less than 50 people, active duty and reserve, were prosecuted. Say it's 100. So what are we talking about? And I, I have yet to see anything, right, relative to numbers linked to this whole idea of extremism in the ranks. I see articles about it. Somebody Can somebody tell me how many people have been actively prosecuted in all of this? Is this another, you know, windmill that we're chasing that will ultimately we will we will have all this bloviating, we will have all this hand-wringing and screaming. And what it really was, was a political event leveraged by politicians with the nodding heads of the civilian leadership of the DOD who didn't step in and say, hey, let's dial this shit down. If these things run their normal course, and we believe this one will too, we believe that it will be, you know, a small, small, small percentage of the active duty and reserve force. Something that honestly is not even worth our time. Yet we're, we're, we see these articles, we're being consumed by these articles, and this is taking up hours of our time. Uh, this is another interesting story in, this, in Stars and Stripes because it deals with standards, okay? And I will tell you that the DOD, in my opinion, cannot lower their standards fast enough, okay? And that's what you have to do because this whole premise that we're all interchangeable, that there is no difference between the genders, right, comes with baggage, right? We have, starting when we're in grade school we have boys and girls sports for a reason there's a big there's a big to do what at university of pennsylvania where a transgender swimmer competed at penn two years ago as a guy is now smashing women's records as a woman and women as they should be are upset about it Quote, we don't have a chance in these races no matter how hard we work. So women's sports are going to be dominated by men who are going through their transgender thing. That's fair. That's right. That's okay. So again, we don't acknowledge differences in gender. Uh, we do in athletics, in grammar school, middle school, high school, and professionally. We certainly do. But when it comes to the American military, there is no physical difference. Okay, so the way you get around that is you lower standards. Now, I say that, and that's, that's generally what happens in the military. Not one exemption on religious grounds for the COVID vaccine. Not one. Granted by, I know, the Department of the Navy and the United States Marine Corps. Not one. Zero. But for the first time, a Sikh military officer can wear his beard and wear his headdress. I'm not sure exactly what that's called. In uniform. That's okay now. 
And once you open that door, then how do you say no to the next group that comes to you? Yeah. And so again, this is this this is an odd story for that reason. With that with that in mind of this lowering of standards, okay? The Marine Corps Marine Corps bases put the kibosh on wearing fitness attire in exchanges and commissaries. Running errands in running shorts is a threat to good order and discipline, the Marine Corps has decided. So it's letting bases bar troops from wearing fitness gear at commissaries and exchanges. And this is the policy that's been in effect forever. The policy change was instituted a little over a year ago by former Defense Secretary Mark Esper when he issued a widely publicized November 2020 memo allowing military and civilian shoppers to wear workout clothes at on-base stores. There you have it. The race to the bottom. There is no standard that we won't lower. Prior to Esper's memo, installation commanders throughout the military could set local dress codes, resulting in rules about athletic attire at the grocery and department stores that sometimes varied across regions or even by service. The rules were sometimes little known or poorly enforced, service members have said. I would tell you is that they're simply ignored. The the guys... And girls who say, oh, I didn't know that, they're lying. They know. They just said, fuck it. One man's opinion. But a few months ago, several Marine commands began issuing rules that contradicted Esper's military-wide policy. Turns out that Commandant Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Dave Berger, had gotten the Navy Secretary's approval for an exception to the policy in a September memo that was not widely disseminated. Quote, Due to this exception, the Marine Corps has not authorized service members to wear athletic attire at commissary and exchanges aboard Marine Corps installations. Captain Ryan Bruce, a Marine Corps spokesman, told Stars and Stripes by phone last week. Now, again, I, it's interesting because there's a race to the bottom relative to standards. Right? If they can't meet your standards, lower them. Look at, what the, look at the cartwheels the Army's doing to find a fitness test. They, they spent millions and millions of dollars rolling out their fitness test, only to find that, that women were struggling with it. And so they, they're on their third revision of it. So what exactly are they doing with the fitness test? They're trying to come up with a, a, a fitness test that eliminates the physical differences between men and women. Yeah, good luck with that. And what are they finding? They can't do it. Because guess what? There are physical differences between genders. No matter how you, I know that's an old-fashioned concept, no matter how you try to fairy dust that motherfucker, yeah, you can't. It's simply the way it is. Oh, Mac, oh, no, 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 listen. I don't have any problem with the unicorns, right? who want to meet the male standard. That, I don't have any problem with that. And let me tell you this. It's, it's kind of an interesting discussion, you know, because the physical standard, phys, physical fitness standards for women have gone up. Got to do pull-ups now. Shit, that ain't easy. Because guess what? They don't have testosterone. They're not built like men. Their bodies aren't. So that's, guess what? 
a woman who joins the Marine Corps, and Marine Corps is trying to grow that number, they look at the physical fitness standards of the Marine Corps, and they're like, yeah, you want me to be a dude, man? I don't, I, can I be a girl and join the Marine Corps? Evidently not. And why? Because we're servicing the unicorn, right? And so everybody's got to move. It's no longer okay if you're a woman and you want to be a Marine. You've got to be something bigger, faster, stronger. And that is the agenda of certain people, uh, certain political leaders, right? And that's how the narrative fits that we're all interchangeable, except we're all not interchangeable. It doesn't work like that. So the whole standards thing, and that's the first thing they tell you when, when we go down this path. The standards will not change. And then they change the standard. Um, another interesting kind of story. Federal hearing begins. Oh, so just for the record, the unicorns exist. And when the unicorns can do it, come on in. The water's fucking freezing ass cold. Hope you enjoy it. It's kind of miserable. But guess what? Misery loves company. So we'll make room for you. Okay. But don't piss down our back and tell us, you know, it's raining. And that is this. We won't lower the standards then we do, then everybody can do it, and then they're failing, and you don't want to acknowledge that. And that's the game that gets fucking played with this shit. Okay, so now that I've got that out of my system, listen to this hearing. Federal hearing begins as Navy SEALs challenge the Defense Department's vaccine mandates. So Navy SEALs, so are we talking about the Department of the Navy? Like, what the fuck is this? A federal hearing is scheduled Monday in Fort Worth, Texas, for several U.S. Navy SEALs and other Naval Special Warfare personnel who filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration. So individuals who happen to be Navy SEALs or Naval Special Warfare personnel have gone to court, federal court, in Texas, after filing a lawsuit against the Biden administration and the DOD. First Liberty Institute filed the lawsuit on the, in November on behalf of 35 enlisted service members who say their rights have been violated and the mandate is unlawful. The majority of the plaintiffs are Navy SEALs, according to the lawsuit. First Liberty is a nonprofit interest law firm based in Plano, Texas, and one of the largest legal organizations in the nation dedicated to defending religious freedoms for Americans. So that's kind of interesting, right? Yeah, I thought so. Uh, top story in the Wall Street Journal today. Stocks rise, recouping some of their losses yesterday on uh, global fears of the latest Omicron slash COVID-19 outbreak and the reaction to it, okay? There's an interesting editorial piece um, in the Wall Street Journal called The Slow Meltdown of the Chinese Economy. So that's kind of interesting. Top story in the New York Times today, to fight Omicron, Biden plans aid from the military and 500 million tests. What is the military going to do? So 
Are we going to treat Omicron like it's COVID-19? This variant, like it's the Delta variant? Hmm. Hmm. Again, when will the adults show up, right? When will the adults show up? So again, what is, what is the, the most important thing? And that is our at-risk population. And that's the most important thing. We've learned that to protect them, right? They need to get vaccinated and all the rest of that stuff. Now, if you don't believe in the vaccine, that's fine, okay? So, um, but all indications from around the world is that while highly transmissible, you know, the symptoms are not, um, are not substantial. Does that factor in at all to anybody's decision-making? It doesn't seem so. And you have the same people doing the same shit. Draconian stuff that is killing business. And again, um, you know, if you look at, if you look at um, caseloads and things like that from a lockdown state like California, Right? They did worse than a state like Florida who didn't lock down. So where's the, where's the rationale behind that? Where's the good sense? I don't know. It just it doesn't, There doesn't seem to be any. Top story in USNI News today. Experts criticize the alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and the Navy finding on the cause of the Bon Armour Shard finding. Case against sailor pending U.S. Third Fleet decision. So uh, this was this story updated yesterday. It has to do with the Article 32 uh, hearing going on in San Diego and uh, the discussion that uh, a sailor set that fire. An expert in electrical engineering told a Navy court that an electrical short in a forklift or some faulty batteries could have sparked the fire that ultimately scuttled the former USS Bonhomme Richard. Countering the Navy's acceptance from a federal fire investigation that a disgruntled sailor deliberately said it, Andrew Thorison, a forensic engineer, said that in a limited four-hour visit to the ship's lower vehicle deck one year ago, he found a wire in a forklift's main conductor feed that had a globule of melted copper wires. Such a globule likely was the result of a localized spot of arcing activity that would generate high heat or touching the metal framing, igniting nearby flammable materials strewn about the stowage area and cause the damage that we have in this case. Thorson testified Wednesday, past Wednesday, at the Article 32 preliminary hearing for Seaman Apprentice Ryan Mays, accused of hazarding a vessel an aggravated arson on the in the July 12, 2020, fire aboard the Bonham Richard at Naval Base San Diego. So, at some point, um, the uh, the judge in that case will make a decision whether that will go forward. So that in USNI news um, from Marine Corps Times top story is. Um, and this is kind of interesting. 
And we had a discussion, and Will brought up some points, because I don't really understand this. New in 2022, 360-degree review coming to help oust toxic Marine Corps leaders. Hmm. So the pilot program is going to be rolled out. It will focus on 200 field-grade officers and senior enlisted Marines. The Marine Corps will use it as a training tool, which will allow those Marines an opportunity to improve on their weaknesses. So 360 degrees means that you will get uh, evaluated from people above you, people below you, and people, you know, laterally to you. A 360-degree review to allow the Marines seniors, peers, and junior Marines to give feedback on their performance. So that's top story. But again, that's not a new story. That's been that's been around for a bit. Um, and top five stories in the early bird today are number one: as the Taliban advanced on Kabul in August, U.S. and coalition aircraft stepped up airstrikes dramatically. Yeah, that was in the news yesterday. Likes, shares, and posts now prohibited in Pentagon's new anti-extremism policy. Well, so how do you monitor that? Who monitors that? There's going to be some new, you know, cyber force that monitors internal activity. And if, you know, if you don't like the military, all you got to do is, you know, take your mouse and click on something and you can, you'll be discharged or punished. Got it. Nightmare. Um, Navy spending $6 million on filtration system to clean up tainted water in Hawaii. Uh, tensions rising between U.S. and Iran. New Year's seen as a potential flashpoint. Biden administration officials are in Israel to consult with Israel relative to the way forward. That's pretty ominous. Uh, next story in the fifth one is U.S. and Britain help Ukraine prepare for potential Russian cyber assault. Yeah, nobody expected that to happen. So, uh, that's the news today. So, without further ado, uh, the Mensa Brothers join me today. And they are, what we're going to talk about is the, um, I asked last week or yesterday, an aspect of Vietnam that, that you thought was really interesting um, as you read. And uh, Tim talked about, DARPA, for those of you who understand the military a little bit, military technology people, um, their origin as ARPA post-World War II and in World War II, and then um, and how they impacted the war in Vietnam. And we also do a bit of a deep dive on the movie The Wizard of Oz. So, without further ado, the Mensa Brothers here on a Tuesday. We're talking about Tim Lynch's sleeping habits right now. Tim has the <laughs> lifestyle of, a, of an 11-year-old. And I say 11 because I think that's when I, my mom allowed me to go to bed. Instead of going to bed at 8.30, I, had to go to, I could go to bed at 9.30. So, Tim, before we introduce everybody, tell us about your, your evolved lifestyle now. Well, I've been habitually going to bed about 9, 9.30 at night. I've... I, Get up 
again, habitually about five, but five thirty in the morning. And um, it's it prior prior to establishing a very rigorous sleep discipline plan or sleep hygiene plan. I'm sorry. Um, you know, I was having problems sleeping through the night. Now I now I I've uh, I don't have that problem as long as you know the, my my day seems to be uh, enough to put me to sleep between working out in the gym and and goofing off and doing you know retired guy stuff, which is not exactly a whole lot. So why would adjusting the clock allow you to sleep better? I always got a I I. I I always tie this to my time in Afghanistan. That was always up before dawn because it sounds like super high speed and manly being that I was living out in the ville with the Afghans or whatnot. But the truth is I was like that since I was a, a kid. When we were at Quantico and, and we were not in the field at nine o'clock, I was in bed. I, I did. I, this is no different from when I was on active duty. And I just get as long as I got a good sleep hygiene plan and, and that involves like no alcohol ever. I mean, except for the weekends and stuff like that, working out, physically working out, making sure I've got nothing that's nagging me that I have to take care of and attend to, which, again, is not a significant amount when I'm not in school. It's uh, I, I get it. I get in a good sleep pattern and I get consistently seven or eight hours, which is is important to at our age, needless to say. Wow. All right. So Tim's in McAllen, Texas. Will, how are you? Good. I don't go to bed till midnight because the rubes don't hit the tables until after dinner. And I don't get up till eight because that way you can have your first cup of coffee and check your portfolio at eight thirty when the market opens central time. And I get my eight hours that away. So just, you, you know, do you sleep eight hours uninterrupted? Can you do that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Fuck. To me, the only thing that wakes me up sometimes, um, my dog will get antsy at about 7.30. And sometimes, so I only get seven and a half. But normally I just wake up at eight o'clock. I go to bed at midnight. And and you wake, God wakes you up? Well, time to wake up at eight o'clock Pretty every day? much. I mean, look, when, you, when you've got the stressors of being <laughs> retired. And wealthy. Um, there ain't a whole lot of things that nag you to keep you up in the middle of the night. Wow. I recommend it to anybody. So hey, I would adopt that lifestyle, but I don't have the patience to fleece rubes. I mean, that takes hours, hours of sitting there paying attention to shit. I can't do it. Uh, and so I, I admire Will's uh, ability to do this. It's just something I'm not capable of. Right. I, I, you right. Know, know yourself, kind of. Thing. It's a skill. It's just no doubt. It's a unique skill, Jeffrey. Uh, in still in Southern at the Western White House in San Clemente, um, he'll transition later this week to the Eastern yes. White House in Las Vegas. Um, but Jeffrey, uh, what about your sleeping habits? Bed between seven and nine o'clock. Uh, I feel like watching. Like last night, we watched uh, Yellowstone. You know, so uh, the new series is on. So I watch that, and then uh, that's what I usually do. And I usually wake up three or four times a night and kind of walk around the house a little bit and then go back to bed. So you, you go to bed between seven and nine? Yeah. Do you have to have blackout curtains? No. No? Right. No. I yeah. sleep pretty. If my wife's with me, I got to wear earplugs because she's snoring. And that distracts me. But uh, How loud? Does she, it, must not, be loud. it must be loud if you have to wear earplugs. It doesn't take much to... Doesn't take much to 
Wait, I you... hate the noise of snoring, you know. So, right. and what I am... snore worse than her, probably. <laughs> but you don't hear yourself. What about? I don't um... hear it, so who cares? And then, what time did you get up? Yeah, usually around four o'clock, between three and four. Wow. Unless it's weekend, then I'll try and sleep in. Like when I'm in Las Vegas, the bed we got is like made of drugs or something. It's a king, the first king size bed we ever had. And I climb up on it. It's like three and a half feet off the deck, almost four feet off the deck. So I got to like, it's almost like a, an obstacle on the oak course to get up in the bed. <laughs> and uh, I get up in there and then I'm dead out asleep. And I mean, I don't get up three or four times a night. I got to get up and run to take to the pisser sometimes but that's about it you know because that bed is comfortable more i wouldn't say my normal places i sleep are uncomfortable but this one is especially comfortable really so, so do you think yeah. the, do you think the change in altitude affects your sleep pattern i mean being four feet off the ground as opposed to maybe <laughs> may, maybe maybe a foot maybe a foot Probably, and a half maybe hmm. maybe interesting i don't think about that much Matter of fact, I don't think that much at all. So you know about things. So you know, I find a lack of reflection is comforting. So. What about? Uh, I I go to bed about I don't know sometime between ten thirty and eleven. Normally, I'll fall asleep on the couch. Uh, uh, most nights where I'll be working, and I'll wake up I don't know three or four times uh, in the night, and then roll over and go back to sleep. Um, so uh, yeah, I wish I yeah. could. I wish I could sleep like Will and Tim do, um, uninterrupted sleep. I have not mastered that art yet. So, um, so anyway, okay. I, I want to go. Back, I want to talk about Vietnam. First of all, I did not share what I thought was most unique uh, in my in my readings um, about Vietnam, and I, I think it's what I've what I've learned about what went on at the Hanoi Hilton. Um, and how those guys come home with a 4% rate of PTSD and everybody else in Vietnam comes home with 30. Now, Jeffrey uh, has a friend uh, who's really smart uh, who served in Vietnam and said, hey, I think that 30% rate of PTSD coming out of Vietnam is bullshit. So let's just say even if we cut it down to 15, right, the number of 4% among guys who were kept in solitary confinement, imprisoned, and tortured is still pretty astounding. And I think Admiral Stockdale might be one of the most unique leaders for the circumstances that he was put in in American history. Um, the fact that he got a, a degree in philosophy, he, he had studied the Stoics. And uh, I think it's really interesting when you watch videos of him on YouTube and when he talks about ejecting from his aircraft, uh, over North Vietnam, he, he said, I knew I was going to the land of Epictetes. And um, he said, I knew I'd be the senior guy there. I knew I'd be there before between five and seven years. And you, you hear Stockdale talk about the experience, and then you hear John McCain talk about it, and the, all the other guys that have written and spoken about it. And to me, it's one of the, it's one of the most fascinating episodes, I think, in, in, in American military leadership history. Um, so... Anyway, but I want to go back to the ARPA-DARPA thing that Timmy started with. So, Timmy, explain the ARPA-DARPA thing um, and, and, and link it to our inability to do counterinsurgencies. I mean, you know, the, the Maginot Line, and then we substituted McNamara's name for it. You know, I, when I first heard about it, um, I was like, what in the hell did we do? 
Um, so I'm so taught how how does this how does ARPA even come about, and then how does it manifest in Vietnam? So in the late 1940s and early 1950s, ARPA had been working on multi-stage rockets using multiple muzzles. In other words, multiple rockets as the base unit, not a single rocket, which is what the Air Force, the route the Air Force had gone. And when Sputnik happens, uh, um, um, all the all of ARPA's rocket stuff, including their mad scientists from Germany, all that gets swept up by the Air Force. They've got nothing. Okay, okay. so hold on. Let me so, ask you. so is ARPA a separate agency inside separate, the Department, a, Department agency, of War? Inside the Department of War. Got Correct. It. Okay. The mad scientists. These were the guys that were talking about the future, and, and, and they had been concentrating on multi-stage rockets and satellites. All that gets sucked away. All their experts, all their equipment, everything, leaving them with, with without much of a mission. However... A guy by the name of William Godel, who was the assistant director of ARPA in 1950, okay. went over with Graves Erskine to look at Vietnam because they were contemplating getting involved there. And it's it's very interesting because Graves Erskine and him Graves, were standing on a hill. Graves B. Erskine? The Graves B. Erskine? Yes, Graves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. General Erskine at the time. So he's, a, he's I believe he's still on it. Yeah, 1950. He's still on active duty. He and Godel yeah. are on a ridgetop yeah. talking with the French who are pointing out where the Viet Minh are. They're right over there where the smoke is. Erskine goes, why don't you send a battalion and get them? He goes, because they'll disappear in the jungle. We won't, we won't know where they are. This way we know where they are. That's what, and, and, and this is interesting in the book because Godel says that Erskine got very drunk that night. He was so pissed off and it's something that he never did, which I, which I would believe. Now, what happens is, is Erskine gets hooked up with um, Lansdale, in in 1954, when Lansdale, I'm I'm sorry, I'm blanking on Lansdale's first name. Excuse me, Edward. but he was sent. To, thank you. Edward. Was sent, yeah, sent to head the CIA's Saigon mission. He bought Goodell, and they started uh, uh, glad handing the, uh, the the administration with all kinds of spy shit, like little cameras that were tie tacks, that kind of bullshit. Apparently, President Diem just loved it. And they get involved in Vietnam, where he starts the strategic Hamlet program first. Then, then they think they got to go to defoliants and some kind of sensor type array because that's what the scientists are saying. But to validate that, they co-opt the the nation's most eminent um, oh oh uh, I would not physiologist uh, the most most emin em eminent um, scientist I'm bringing, the nuclear more towards geared more towards the nuclear engineering aspects the guys from MIT Stanford and whatnot they put together this old man's you know uh, oversight committee they get flown into Thailand and Saigon get to experience all the spy stuff with Lansdells and Goodall then they come back and say hey we think this would be a good defoliant and they develop Agent Orange Agent Purple Agent Blue and ultimately sending uh, selling on Agent Orange. <laughs> which DARPA uses to deflect blame off of them when they get caught up in the controversy over the use of defoliants. And they were also the ones that came in with those sensors. And, and interestingly enough, those sensors worked one time when my dad was, uh, I think he was in, he was outside of Quezon on that sensor line on the trace 
and every sensor in front of him started going off. And he said he, he ran artillery all night long. And they chewed up a, a tremendous number of people that were coming at him. So at least once it worked, but off more, more often than not, it was it was a waste of time. So this was all done because of the Pentagon's unwillingness to address counterinsurgency, you know, as a problem, despite it being the most common form of warfare historically that we've dealt with since our very founding. And, and, and because of the military's lack of preparation and, and unwillingness to see the conflict as a counterinsurgency thing, they started looking for technology to substitute for tactical acuum. And, uh, and you, get, you, you, know, you get what you got in Vietnam. But behind the entire thing, from the very beginning, that grouping of scientists whose sole job is to grow their bureaucracy. That, you got to keep in mind, these guys, they're patriots, they want to help, blah, blah, blah. But they're looking for missions, and they're looking like every other bureaucracy in the DOD to grow and become more relevant. And they came up with some bizarre bullshit to include a, um, uh, using animals, a uh, 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 let loose dogs, and all kinds of stuff to try to shut down the Viet Cong, especially trained dogs with bombs, stupid stuff like that that never worked. And it's just there's just an entire legacy of this crap that meant that the Viet in North Vietnam, the first Marine Division and the third Marine Division, spent a lot of time on the trace supporting this kind of bullshit instead of doing what needed to be done, which was to go across the sanctuary, in my humble opinion. You know, so, interesting, so, a, a sort of parallel. Uh, when we came back, and I was in, uh, I was in the uh, Industrial College of the Armed Forces, so this is 2005, 2006, and uh, Senator Warner sends a note over to the school, so it's National War College, Industrial College of the Armed Forces, wants to talk to ground battalion commander so 10 of us go over and sit with uh warner and uh i think reed was in there and uh, a couple of their staffers and it's supposed to be completely off the record and uh, they went around the table you know where were you what was your unit what's the problem and uh i would say that the 80 to 90 percent part of the problem was is that we we didn't have enough people to physically surveil the area and warner and reed were constantly pushing gadgets because congress can spend money on gadgets they can't spend money on people very fast so they were looking for that sort of silver bullet how do we spend money on gadget solution so that's part of our Pentagon bias. The other thing is uh, JIEDO, the Joint IED Defeat Organization. So JIEDO, uh, I think part of JIEDO's funding was money that we got from Saddam. I could be wrong by, on that, but JIEDO had this strange money stream. And the good idea fairies would come out and they'd have a Jaedo meeting. And it typically meant some sort of drone surveillance camera system. And I'm talking Afghanistan time period now uh, when I was in the ACMAX office. And these things would come around for $12 million appropriations, $60 million appropriations, $300 million appropriations. And they were all TS. Um, and so... 
Uh, Explain to us for me. Top secret. And so the the thing would come in, and um, you know, if the general wasn't there, I'd have to hold this TS book in my office. And it was a pain in the ass because I had to sit on this damn book, and I was cleared, <laughs> so I'd be reading these things. So I got pretty smart on a lot of these things, and and the more I the more I read up on them, it seemed like it was capability stacked on top of capability. So a very narrow uh, sort of capability as opposed to a portfolio of capabilities that sort of covered a spectrum. Well, Jido, Jido. So, and, and so I finally right. asked him. Jido stands for Joint IED Defeat Organization. And it's like not just military stuff, it's civilian companies and things too. And they're the ones who are responsible initially. I guess I don't get to talk. Okay, go ahead. No, you can talk in a minute, but let Will finish his point. No, no, all, all I was saying was is that... I thought he was done. I said you could see that this was all about spending money. They, they fundamentally didn't have an idea of the spectrum required and are we covering the spectrum of capabilities to defeat this thing it was about spending money and so sort of the the strength from arpa to darpa to to iraq to afghanistan is we like to spend money on shit we don't like to do people so jeff yeah the jaito guys they still exist now they're just called Jido, but uh, they they um, they kind of morphed into um, contractor support for the counterinsurgencies that are still going on, you know, in the Iraq and Afghanistan until you know Afghanistan went belly up. And I don't know what they're doing now, but that's who I worked for my first contractor job, the Wexford Corporation, part of Jido. And uh, the uh, initially though, they were the ones who put those ECMs in our Humvees. They, they developed that stuff. And then, uh, it, yeah, it got off into all kind of weird things. But eventually, you know, the uh, just like in Vietnam, I mean, I, I, actually never in Vietnam, but uh, they, you, they finally realized that you got to bite the bullet and do the hard thing and put more people in there. The only way you could do a counterinsurgency with the number of people we had initially, both in Vietnam and in Iraq, is brutality because that works because when and tim is right when he says most of the stuff we're involved in is counterinsurgency and how we were successful at them was is a mixture of brutality and psychology so we would deny water to uh populations that you know that uh, that protected insurgents both in uh everywhere from the philippines to the you know the indian territories we did that uh with the way the with the way that uh media is now and uh you know report reportage as they say we won't do it because it's horrific it's horrific it's not heroic that's what normal military stuff is it is the arm that compels people to do th there there's things required and requiring when requiring fails you must compel or give up and when we compel it's ugly it always is and that's why they don't they like things instead of people because the people have to actually commit brutal acts. And, um, you know, that's uh, 
That's not good for public consumption. That's my opinion of it anyway, based on my observation, particularly since 2004 up till, you know, the present day. Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely valid, Jeff. And rather than saying, yeah, we've done what we can, right? We will have to let them sort this out. We, you know, we head down the, you know, we're going to have small groups of, you know, guys like Don Rumsfeld and, and this approach that Will's talking about is 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 a another iteration, a better version of Don Rumsfeld's small SF unit zooming around. Somehow that we believe we can control the country in the aftermath of a war like that. And then you have, you know, Senator Warner, Warner and Reed, you know, doubling down for better, more improved ways, which is simply the evolution of what Timmy's talking about. You know, from ARPA to DARPA, this American way that, you know, this gadgetry way of of warfare. And, you know, and in an insurgency, you're talking about a really a political issue, right, that you're trying to prevail in. And, you know, it's, uh, as you said, Jeff, you can bend them, but it's not going to be pretty. And in this modern day of video, you know, and I mean, go back to Vietnam. Uh, you know, the, the, what the police chief in, was it Saigon? Shoots that dude in the head. Right. That's, yeah. that's how you do it. Yeah. Lone. Yeah. And, the, uh, and so, all... I mean, you remember, you, you remember the iconic images, the Buddhist monks setting themselves on fire as part of a political right. protest and those images going around the world and people are going, what in the fuck is going on? Right. And so into that, yeah. you're going to drop all these, you know, combatants. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's rough shit. And if you're not going to, if you're not going to be all in, then you should be not in. Right. And, but we don't, we don't like to do that. You're right. It's like, and not only that, it's like some things that are absolutely true are now told to be, we're now told are, are absolutely false. Like, uh, torture, torture absolutely works. It works. It worked on all those guys in the Hanoi Hilton, and they'll admit it. But you have to say, no, it doesn't work. I mean, well, McCain would admit it. You know, no, that doesn't really work. But it does. But it's ugly. And so during the war, we did this rendition thing where we'd send them to other countries that were allied with us, and they would torture them, torture people and and find out information. And that's how we uncovered stuff. No, it doesn't work. You know, it's all of a piece. There's no one solution, no problem. You know what's you know, you curious look, about that? You know there's different ways of doing things. That's true. What's curious about that is our American experience, both in North Korea and in Vietnam, you know, told us what? That torture would break people and they would give up what they knew. Yet you have, you know, yeah. you have General Mattis saying, you know, I can get more with a pack of cigarettes and a conversation than I can, you know, through somebody torturing somebody. And um, you and, can, and you have Senator McCain, Senator McCain coming out saying that the United States of America cannot, you know, as a nation, torture people. So it's it's interesting. Well, you, you can footnote what Mattis was saying with our experience in World War II, where they got a hell of a lot out of those generals. Of course, uh, under no time pressure, uh, 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 they had all the time in the world. They gave basically gained their cooperation, such as it is. But, did, but, but Timmy, you would say that that would be passively collecting over time, and if yeah, time is that, any yeah, if time is any form of a component, 
right, then you cannot right. collect like that. That is a no, 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 right, no. no I, and you're talking I'm about not, you're but, talking about the country clubs that got set up in like England, and then they yeah. had they had they were listening to everything that got said and their discussions and all of that. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. All that kind of stuff. But but going back to the Jido thing and what Jeff was kind of uh, going in concert with Jeff from the outside looking in when I saw our advisors escorting pickup loads of, of Afghans in the combat and these gigantic half a million dollar, three quarter million dollar gigantic armored vehicles, which really weren't appropriate to their terrain. I was embarrassed because you cannot find any military expert anywhere in the world that says, sure, that's the way to train a host nation. You lock yourself inside yeah, one of these armored bubbles, put them in unarmored shit, and then drive them on up into the mountains where everybody's shooting down at them with 50 cows. That's a great fucking uh, uh, example. It's not a great example. It's not how you do it. And because we had so much technology, both in Vietnam and in Afghanistan, we couldn't do what we needed to do, which was violate the sanctuaries and make the sanctuaries unsafe and go on the offensive and tactically solve a tactical problem. And we could have done it. We could have done it with the Max Sog unit type units, which were like the Sellers Scouts were in Rhodesia, which were very effective small units comprised mainly of host of indigenous personnel led by Americans. Could have done that easy, but we did because we had giant, we had gigantic million dollar armored vehicles that you couldn't hardly drive around them. The fucking things were dangerous to be in. I mean, don't you, time I was nervous don't you driving, think around, it's, driving around was with you guys. Don't you think it's it's almost creepy if you sit in the OPT and you say, hey, um, all right, this is what Afghanistan is. All right, let's talk about, we've seen an insurgency. Let's liken it to Vietnam. Is there anybody that will will give them refuge on the other side of the border, right? <laughs> and then you would have heard very quickly, right? Yes, Pakistan. And so it makes the whole, it makes the whole decision, you know, to continue to double down and double down and triple down. I'm using gambling terms. So Will, if I fuck these up, please correct me. Um, so double down, triple down and all these things. It, I mean, at, at the strategic level, as you're looking at this, right? You're, it's got all the components of failure, all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we... yeah, and it's not like you have to tell them that you're going across the border. We could sit there and do what the Pakistanis did. I don't. I, we don't have any responsibility for those people. Got no idea who you're talking about. Yeah, we've done that shit before. Right. We did it a few times in Afghanistan when they were when they were looking for something specific, but we could have done that as a matter of routine, and, and taken the battle away from the population centers and put it where it ought to have been, which is in those goddamn tribal areas. Interesting. Jeff, you were right. going to say something? Absolutely. Well, I was going to say that, uh, you know, the, uh, the when, when Timmy just brought up uh, Pakistan and you brought up uh, Pakistan, the, as soon as 9-11 happened, I think people knew there's two countries outside that were making it possible for these guys to do, you know, what they did. And Saudi Arabia is one and Pakistan's the other one. And yet we acted, we, we pretended like they're our allies. That's where we should have been putting pressure. That's where we should have been putting pressure. So we fuck around with that Iraq, you know, it is a waste of money, waste of lives, you know, and all the, and the shit we did in Afghanistan, looking around, they had us looking all over the place in RC East and RC South, 
looking for for uh, bin Laden when they knew fucking a well in Pakistan, you know. And I don't know how many guys got killed, you know, trying to find people who weren't there or they're only there, you know, seasonally, you know. It, and uh, they knew it, and they just went on ahead with it anyway. And, and, the, other and thing, the number of people we killed, we killed in that yeah. look in that hunt that weren't when they weren't there. We, yeah, we shot up a lot of fucking Afghan families. Right. Yep. You know, so Iraq, you know, we needed more people to cover the ground. That's the way the terrain is. That's the way it was. You needed more of them. I mean, it's obvious. It was so obvious. It's embarrassing to even bring it to remember it. You know, all mm. these supposedly smart people, the Bush administration, later Obama. You know, that smart is as smart does, as the great philosopher Boris Gump said, right? And uh, <laughs> it was just ridiculous. But then in Afghanistan, it was the opposite. Oh, we need to, you know, we need to put more units in there. That's the absolute what they didn't need to do. Because every time they put battalions in places where there's no no evidence of counterinsurgency whatsoever, there one would start up, particularly down there in Nagahar province. Oh, yeah. Stupid. Yeah, because yeah, there's infidels. They're infidels. Yeah. There's infidels that are right. on our land. Yeah, they're Driving always going to run. I think what, it's interesting, though, to me, the, as you paint the ARPA DARPA, this American penchant for this American style of war that we want to fight, um, and our lack of sophistication, um, you know, relatively relative to seeing what is there and then adjusting both our strategic goals, you know, and, and having a very, very um, jaundiced eye for what is what is doable and not wasting American treasure both in you know life and 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 in cash as well as not subjecting the population you know to the horrors of war we just don't we just seem shitty at that and I think that if uh, if American policymakers in the future could learn any lesson it's like if anybody says the word insurgency just sh stop the meeting and say yeah we're not going to do that just stop it I mean it's, it's, it's just we, we're just we're just horrible at that. But I want to switch gears and talk about the Wizard of Oz. Okay. Okay, you guys ready? Ready, yes. All right. So, uh, so let's, we'll start with a general thought about the Wizard of Oz. Will, a general thought about the movie, The Wizard of Oz. Stoic philosophy. Whoa. <laughs> Tim, a general thought about the movie, Wizard of Oz. An allegory of the populist movement. Whoa, those seem to those seems seem to be diametrically opposed. But we'll 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 reconcile them here in a few minutes. Jeffrey, um, a general thought about the Wizard of Oz. Now I'm a simple guy, so I'll just say this: There's no place like home. <laughs> There's no place like home. I don't know how many times I heard that in that movie. That's what it is. That's the, that is what they're trying to put across. Wait, I think you, you don't you only it. hear it? I watched the movie last night. You can watch it. It's on YouTube. Uh -huh. uh, you can watch it for free uh, if you want to. And so, uh, so Colleen and I watched well, it. And, I know. It's, and but so you only like you only hear there's no place like home at the end of the movie, though, right? So that's that's again, what I thought. Yeah, just coming in weak and unreadable. Say it again, Mac. You um, you only hear there's no place like home right at the end of the movie, though, right? No, you hear it all the way through. I don't, I don't know, I don't recall that. Well, first part, 
you know, she's home and uh, there she's under attack by Elmira Gulch, the girl who the lady who wants to take her dog and kill it because right. the dog nipped at her, right? So um, she doesn't want to be home then because home is not a refuge. She, she, in her girl's mind, she perceives that. So she sings a song. Maybe there's someplace better, somewhere over the rainbow. And right but, before, uh, and right before she sings a song, she says this, and I quote: "I want to go to a place where I can't get into any trouble." And then she right. sings somewhere over the rainbow and she runs away yeah but everybody's telling her her parent her aunt and uncle are telling her the guy she sees who later becomes the wizard of oz who has the medicine show you know he tell frank morgan he tells her you know you should he, he does this he kind of tries to fool her into going back home yes oh i see a woman she's he's holding onto her heart she, everyone's telling her you know that she should stay home until she realizes it herself and the Glenda the Goodwitch says, bang your heels together and say there's no place like home. But that's the whole point of the movie. Oh, there's no place like I was home. thinking, I was just, I, I was taking it literally. There's no place like home. Okay, so, yeah. okay, so um, let me ask you a few questions. What does Oz represent in the movie? Are you talking to me? Well, we'll start with Will, or since us. that's our cycle yeah, right now. Will, what does Oz represent in the movie? I think it's the unattainable. It's the it's the it's the bright shiny object that's irrelevant. That's why I say Stoic philosophy. Be satisfied with what you got and prove what you are individually. Uh, don't don't spend time and effort on on uh, the bright and shiny object because what's important is right inside you. Wow. See, this is what's so fucked up about my friends. I mean, most of the time they're shitbags, right? And then they say shit like that. Um, Timothy? If you're talking hey, about yes, the I just wizard... made that up. I, I, didn't, I haven't watched a movie in years and didn't do any reading, so... Wow. That's amazing. That was good, though, because uh, I watched a movie last night. Oh, um, so... We're talking about the Wizard of Oz? What does he represent? No, no, no. What does the city Oz represent in the movie? I think you're referring to the Emerald City, and the Emerald City represents DC. <laughs> Emeralds represent greenback currency. That's that's what the Emerald City represents. Really, yeah. it represents yeah, yeah, greenback. Yeah, I, mean, I agree, Paul. It doesn't. It, uh -huh. it doesn't re represent some utopian thing that she thinks is out there. It represents cash. Yeah, it, it rep no. It's it's not exactly the Emerald City is not is is DC, according to the populist movement. They perceived Washington D.C. as it actually is today. Back then, D.C. wasn't the most uh, uh, exclusive um, uh, set of, of zip codes in the nation as it does now. Nor did D.C. house the most affluent group of people as it does now. It is now truly the Emerald City. But back then, it represented greenback currency, and in the populist movement, they were not down with greenback currency, and they weren't too happy with Washington D.C. Okay, relate the relate the, the the book to the populist movement, if you will, just so people understand. Okay, so this was published in 1900 um, by L. Frank Brom and the populist movement, which was something that was started uh, by a, a grassroots of farmers. They called themselves the Grange, and in 1892 they ran a guy named Weaver for president, and they were a political movement throughout throughout the West. What they believed in most fervently was maintaining a gold standard 
Um, and they also believed fervently that they were being hosed by people in, 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 uh, uh, in Washington, D.C., and they were attempting to get the country to recognize that an agrarian movement where you're where you're growing your own food, blah, 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 very similar to some some movements today. That was what they were all about. So they had um, as you look at the movie from from their perspective, the, the Wizard of Oz, that's President uh, that's President Grant to McKinley. You know, everybody that they were guys that were said they were everything to everybody. But in reality, they're just a common person hiding behind a facade, you know, the Tin Man was a northern factory worker. The cowardly lion wasn't Jeff Kenny, it was Williams Jennings Bryant, a wonderful speaker, but unsuccessful politician. And he's a loser, and good losers lose. That's the cowardly lion. So from the from the populist movement, I had to dig into academia to find this because my dad, when we watched the movie the first time, just like I don't like the Beatles because he went batshit crazy when he came on Ed Sullivan, he, at the end of the movie, he turned to me, see, see that son, fucking communist, taking all this, taking all the all the money for themselves and hiding behind a, the the visage of authority. He said something like that. Although I don't think <laughs> back then my dad used the word visage. Uh, my memory could be faulty. Yeah. All right. All right. So just that's a little bit but historical. It's deeper, it's deeper than communism. Right. Historical. You know. What do the winged monkeys? What do the winged monkeys represent? The plain Indians, because this is the 1890s. They were st they're still running around slaughtering people. <laughs> I think they run out the West Point cadets. <laughs> nah, the winged monkeys were the plain Indians, unable to find a home in the U.S. frontier. They were dying out, and the gov government was unable to send them west again. So they just kind of flitted around in Kansas, um, except they, for the Osage. They got Oklahoma, they, Oklahoma. Uh -huh. Yeah, Oklahoma. Excuse me. All right. What about uh? Okay, hold on, Jeffrey. What does the Emerald City represent in the movie? Yeah, I have to tell you, I'm I'm impressed. Will and Tim, I agree with both of them. I think uh, <laughs> what Timmy's talking about is the way it's represented in America. Because remember, this movie, even though it comes from a book that was written, you know, just at the turn of the century, it was uh, it was made in 1939, and through the genius of Franklin Roosevelt, who managed to extend the Depression three more years than the rest of the world had with the stupid ideas. Um, you know, people were still suffering. And, uh, and uh, you know, so the idea that uh, you go to the city and, and do this thing was, you know, came back. You had a lot of people who had left uh, Oklahoma, ironically, and traveled uh, traveled west to California, hence the books by John Steinbeck, like Mice and Men and uh, The Grapes of Wrath. And so this was at, at that time period. And I think that's exactly right. Like if you, there's a there's a cup there's a line when they're in the Emerald City, and it seems great when they get there. And, and, and Dorothy says, "Can you even dye my eyes to match my gown? You bet, jolly old town. <laughs> it's like, I, who would fall for such bullshit, right? And uh, well, the people in uh, Oz did because Oz is just some hapless dude who was, uh, you know, who was, uh, you know. He's a showman. He's in a air, hot air balloon, and he loses control of it. And he ends up in Oz, and he bullshits his way. Okay, so Oz, Oz, hold on. Oz is the yeah. ter. Oz is the territory. The Emerald City is the city. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, mm -hmm. I, I think Oz is the name of the city too. It's like kind of like there's New York State. Timmy just fucking corrected me and said, "You mean the Emerald City?" Yeah. Right. But it's but the Oz is also the name of the city. Yeah, yeah, the the you, the, the book and movie you fucker is named Lynch? The Wizard That's the second Oz. time you set me up in two days. The, the, I think wiz that was in the, the Wizard of Oz. 
I, I, I would tell you that it's about the Wizard of Oz who was in Emerald City. That's that's. And what about what about the silver shoes? What do you think they're symbolic of? The ruby red How slippers. About the ruby slippers. The, nah, silver the silver shoes. shoes. She started out with can't, Dorothy. Dorothy, when she arrives, has silver shoes on. Silver which, or just regular shoes? No, they're silver colored, and they they're representative of silver money. Because when she returns to Kansas, she doesn't have the silver anymore. <laughs> Get it? Like the, the government orders orders uh, silver silver dollars and silver currency, but that shit don't seem to get all the way out to Kansas. Because by the time somebody from Kansas comes back, they've got no silver. I've got to watch it again today. today no. I've got to look. Yeah. I've got to look deeper into yeah. it. You can read okay. the book though, because the the book's way more involved and long. And you know, matter of fact, I think I'm going to read the book for the next thing we read. So don't you read it? Okay. Unless you want. To. All right. So she's running away, right? Oz changes her mind, tells her to go back. She gets whacked on the head, and then she gets mm-hmm. teleported in that fucking house. Um, the um, so the wizard grants a diploma, PhD, to the straw man, right? Right. Um, and then he he says, "You're confusing courage with wisdom," and he gives the cowardly lions a medal, right? Right. And then he talks about heart. Right, heart. The sign of heart is how much you're loved by others, right? And then yeah. he says, you need to return to the land of e pluribus unum. Right, that's it. Right. So, talk to me about Will. Uh, since you didn't even watch the fucking movie, are you just pulling this stuff out of your ass? Are you just being like? <laughs> I've, just- I've seen the movie once. <laughs> 20 times but it's been a long time okay so ultimately what's the lesson and it does culminate in there's no place like home there's no place like home all and then all these things were always in these people the whole time right that's the lesson is that you have to recognize what you actually have and value and not covet those other things many of which are unattainable and have no value once you grasp them mm-hmm. you, you should you you uh I, you know i read that daily stoic and a whole lot of that is think about what you have and what it is uh and maximize it um and don't be concerned with that other stuff whatever that is because it's really not very valuable you have what you need okay now timothy does will's linking there's no place like home and what he just said right with your version of this as a populist narrative Uh, i want to go back to one thing okay a correction for our many people out there the populist did not like the gold standard. The populists, the Western farmers and all that, they needed more money in circulation. So they were all about free coining of silver. And that's the famous William Jennings Bryan speech. You know, you're going to be, I don't think he said crucified, you'll die on a cross of gold. The gold standard drained money from the economy. And so they wanted to free coin silver, a very slight economic nuance. 
That's that's not slight. It's it's, one eighty out, and he is correct. He is correct. In my breakdown, the gold standard was represented by the yellow brick road, and it was a set amount of gold, and it was only so much. And the amount of circulation was limited to what you saw right in front of your face. And that was all there was. No ability to expand the economy because you're limited by your uh, um, your gold standard. That's exactly yeah. right. That and is I wrong. Think the ruby slippers represent your actual blood, your actual feelings. Because um, throughout the whole uh, movie, not the whole movie, but when the witch makes her appearance, the witch is always trying to get her hands on those slippers. And in the book, same thing. She tried all these things. When Dorothy, Dorothy was actually her slave in the book for a while and uh, trying to get those slippers off her. But the slippers are the, are the key to the, the truth of it that, hey, everything you need is at home and you can get there yourself if you just decide you want to go. You just bang your heels together and there you are. And Timmy's right. By the time she gets there, she doesn't need them anymore. But um, and there's so much symbolism. Like if you remember when they're on their way to Oz, they're almost there. The witch doesn't want her want her to get there. So the witch brought them through those poppy fields. Poppies obviously representing lethe, like, you know, actual opium, which was a problem in the thirties. Mm-hmm. like it is now and alcohol and shit like that, you know, and, uh, and what does uh, Glenda the good witch do? <laughs> she fucking has snow going and kill all the poppies, you know, which wakes them up, you know, unusual weather we're having, huh? The lion says, right? <laughs> so, so what is, yeah, what, was, what did the rip, what did the witches represent? In the movie, Jeff. Uh, well, I think the witches represent, uh, you know, leadership. Like uh, there's an evil, gr- greedy witch who's ugly and horrid, and uh, and she and, and vengeful because, you know, Dorothy inadvertently kills her sister by her house dropping on her, and uh, the other one, the good witches, the the witches of the north, the north and south are good, and the east and west are bad, and uh, so in the book they talk about. The uh, you know the the other good witch who doesn't really make an appearance. But wait a minute, who's the bad witch? The bad witch is the wicked witch of the east, east and, and west. west. Okay, who's west. the one that dominates the movie? The wicked west. 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 Uh, the west. Well, it's interesting that she would choose that, that they would choose west, not east, in the movie because we know that most evil in the country comes out of the east. But well, but the wicked witch of the West wasn't no, about the, people. California leads the country in evil. Not in 1990 though. And and it might have been the East was uh, East was 1890. Europe and West was uh, New York. <laughs> Could it, 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 in my in my reading, in in my reading, the wicked witch of the West represents nature, and and how horrible nature has been to the farmers of the West. And nature is dispatched by water, symbolizing irrigation of the Western lands in order to tame nature and be productive. That's right. And the wicked the wicked wheat of the East was a symbolic of industrialist and capitalists that kept workers in bondage for long hours. Because in order to believe something really stupid, you gotta go to college for like to get a PhD, you know? (laughs) So they may be reading too much into it that thing but to really believe stupid shit you got to be you got to be like a doctor to believe <laughs> insane things you know so uh, i think they might have been pushing a little bit on that but i'll tell you what most of what you're saying is uh you know uh is what i agree with you know and I, i'll tell you the yeah. the uh yeah the it, that makes kind of sense but uh, again like i said these guys um you know 
They can find a turd in a bowl of ice cream, these PhDs, man. No, no. And you could probably do it as a, a very similar thing linking it to communist things. But yeah. this seems to line up. As far as the ridiculous stuff I read in the academic journals last couple of years, this is one of the few things that's made sense. Because yeah. it, yeah. it does seem to be right on. I was real pleased to find it because I figured nobody else had yet. Because who looks for shit like this? <laughs> <laughs> Only the Mensa brothers, you know. Yeah. How fun. No. The eternal symbolism no, of the Wizard of Oz. I mean, it is. It it's is. interesting. Yeah, no, it's it's huh? interesting when you look at the story and, uh, you know, at the end, um, she says, I think Dorothy says, this can never be like Kansas. And then she gets asked, what have you learned? Right? If it's not there, it's not important. Right. And she says, there's no place like home. Right? Mm -hmm. no. And I'm... I think next week we'll be talking. Max says the Mensa brothers delve into the true meaning of Jimmy Crack Corn, and I don't care. Why? Do I care? <laughs> no, but but what made the in, what, only we could talk for an hour and a half about that shit. <laughs> but what makes this interesting, though, right, is right. the popularity of the story and the background of the story, right? I mean, the fact that it was kind of what sparks the whole discussion is you singing, Jeff. I mean, come on. Yeah. That is a moment in all Marine radio history and Mensa brother history that, you know, will live in infamy. And then, but again, then all of a sudden you start. <laughs> like you start, Harbor, yeah. Yeah. And you, you start thinking about the movie and this quest for these things they don't have. And then it lends, obviously it lends, I think it lends itself very easily to deeper exploration. And, and on the book, always more interesting than, than the movie, certainly. And then what spawned the book? And I think that's all fascinating stuff or something that you, we've I reduced to a be, witch and monkey. Could, could it be popular today? If, yeah. if the symbolism that I uncovered is, in fact, what the symbolism was intended to be, the, the, the dominating of Mother Nature, who's an evil witch by irrigation. <gasps> what? There's river smelts and tree frogs and all kinds of shit that's got to be considered these days. Is that even a popular thought now, that man can tame nature and impose his will on the elements in order to extract from it material value in the form of agricultural produce? Mm. And it's no, it's no mm. accident that like only seven or eight years before that was the great drying of uh kansas and oklahoma led to the dust bowl that's right migration of people to the west which caused finished know, off the but that but again that would have been in in the 30s right the 20s right. the right. 20s and the 30s which is 20 years after the book gets published so that would have been overlaid that thing would have been overlaid on it by the screenwriters right yeah. not in yeah. the original yeah. book so it'd be right. so right. yeah it's interesting okay all right um all right, boys. Well, that was interesting. Now I have to go. I have to go back and look to see if Dorothy was wearing silver shoes when she goes back to Kansas. Hey, hey man, were, were we going to do a Christmas show? I thought this is like third time we've tried a Christmas show. What are we? What are we going to do a Christmas show? What do we do? I don't know. What I thought you said about? something about the. Hey, buddy, I'm, I'm not the friggin' decision maker about what we talk about on this last up here. I was just Look, thought that you would mention. I was talking yesterday. Yeah, I was talking yesterday after when you guys aren't around that I was going to try to trick you, Rubes, into doing like four days this week. So I've got, to, <laughs> I've got to, and it got a popular response too. 
Oh, do you think they would? Do you think they would? And my response was, they're dumb as fuck, right? All I do is chum the water, and it's not like they're doing anything else other than Jeffrey, who's got a very busy workload. Um, but we're trying to be respectful of his work time. So, um, so yeah, we could talk. What would we talk about relative to Christmas? But I, I do think so. Tomorrow, I think we ought to talk about Jeffrey's Vietnam observation. Um, relative to uh, helicopters, and uh, we'll kind of crawl down that rabbit hole, and then we can talk about Christmas. Tim, you, is there any aspect of Christmas you, you you're particularly looking to explore? Uh, no, I don't know. I no, no, no. I, I I spent a lot of time away. I spent one Christmas with Jeff. I went over on Christmas Eve and ate at his defect. Right. As a matter of fact, yeah, yeah. I, I spent. Uh, Oh no! I Marine Corps birthday with you guys, not Christmas. No, nah, I was just I I thought you were going to ask us about Christmas yeah, stories from overseas. Uh, in Afghanistan, they give you like Hawaiian lays. <laughs> for the Marine Corps Britain. remember that, Timmy? I got pictures of. It. Yeah, I, like, I did. Yeah. That's a yeah yeah that's a that's a Pakistani Afghan right uh, right pashto thing. The flowers, man. The flowers. That's allegedly how they found Osama bin Laden in two thousand eight. For us retired people, we do need to respect Jeff's work time because he's the only one still paying into Social Security. So that's <laughs> true. We plan to all be drawing it here soon. Yes, so including me. Yeah. yeah. The um all right, a final thought on ARPA DARPA or the Wizard of Oz, Will. Yeah, I laid it all on the table. <laughs> I, I'm satisfied with what I have inside me. <laughs> I don't need to strive for the unattainable. Tim, a final thought. Well, I had an awfully secure uh, internet connection thanks to a DARPA project in Jalalabad, as a matter of fact. And that was, I didn't even know at the time it was funded by them. I found out when I read this book I was talking about. So uh, I've been a direct beneficiary of their mat of that money floating around, but it is a peculiar way to prosecute a war. Very, very strange. The, to be throwing so much money around that it just it, it, it just impacts everything. You just you can't can't throw a rock without hitting somebody's drawn money coming from DARPA or the or the or the USAID. Just bizarre. Got yeah. it, Jeffrey. Final thought about any of I, that which we've discussed. I, I ran out of thoughts like halfway through this, so I don't have any more. <laughs> but I do want. I am looking forward to deep. In deep exploration into the true meaning of Willy Wonka and Mary Poppins, you know, in the future, because I think we could do justice to that. Oh, what was the chocolate factory like true meaning? What was the chocolate? Is was he was he a was that manure? What the hell's going on here anyway? Absolutely. <laughs> All right, there you have it. On the Tuesday note, on the Tuesday of a very Mensa Christmas. Um, there you have it. The Mensa, the Mensa brothers, as promised. So, more of All Marine Radio coming up next. You don't hear quality radio like that every day. So, if you have an opinion about the Wizard of Oz. Don't be afraid to share it. We're interested. Yeah. Because you can see how the story would change, right? 
from a story written around 1900, 1890-ish. Something made into a movie in 1930s. So, whatever your take is, let us know. And as we went off the air, you know, Will said, well, we never talked about the use of, you know, little people in a movie. What was that about? What was that meant to... Why did they do that? So, we might have to take that up. Why did they do that? So, anyway. Um, have a great day. Merry Christmas again. Happy holidays to everybody out there. Who doesn't do Christmas? And, um... Have a great week. If you feel the, uh... If you have the opportunity to help somebody, don't hesitate. If I can help you help them, don't hesitate to reach out. Yeah, in my solitude this week, I have nothing else to do. So be happy to help. So with that said, I'm Mike McNamara, this is All Marine Radio. Have a great day. I'm out. Merry Christmas and happy holidays, everybody.